good morning. Would you just take a moment? We don't do it often, but would you just, would you just say how thankful we are for our worship team? Yeah, they get here in the mornings. They practice. They thank you guys so much for all that you do. We're honored. Kind of awkward, didn't it, where you got to play your own applause? <laughs> oh, you guys can have a seat this morning. Good to be with you. I'm excited to have an opportunity to share. We've been in our series on opening the gates. And uh, I'd like to read a couple of passages. We're going to read from Psalms 24 this morning, and then we're going to go to Genesis 28. So if you have your Bibles, you may want to get there with me. And uh, Or the scriptures will be on the screen there. Just read Psalms 24. We're going to start at verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? It's the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? the Lord of hosts, the Lord strong and mighty. He is the king of glory. Now we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 28. And we're going to read a portion of a familiar story of Jacob's dream. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there, and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, notice that, and the top of it reached heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you whenever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from this sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Let's just be honest. We could all confess that, can't we? Surely the Lord was here, and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. Would you all just say this to me? Say, house of God, house of God. is the gate of heaven. One more time. House of God, house of God. is the gate of heaven. Yeah. Right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray in the next few moments that you would, um, you would keep us from the opinions of men. We long to hear a word from you. Would you speak to us this morning? And I'm so confident you want to speak with your people that if you couldn't speak through me, you'd speak in spite of me. So I pray for ears to hear what you're saying. Lord, I just take a moment and pray for our children as they're being ministered to in D-Kids and D-Kids Junior. We pray that you would give our children a heart to know you and to walk in your ways that you would stir in them the desire to gaze upon your beauty all the days of their life. 
We pray for those serving and ministering to them that you would bless them this morning. And in here, Lord, we pray, I pray that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever noticed how sometimes we can get familiar with words and phrases that we no longer think much about them? That we, we get so close to them that we don't actually think about what they mean? I mean, just thinking about it briefly this morning, there's a couple. One, the phrase chit-chat, right? Chit-chat, it's an interesting phrase. You can have a chat, but have you ever had a chit? That just doesn't matter. I don't understand it, right? But instead of saying, hey, do we, did, hey we, we had a chat, we say, we, do you want to chit-chat? Right? You never say, do you want to chit? i got to be careful there. <laughs> that just seems odd. That's an odd turn of phrase. Or the fact that you can be, you can be underwhelmed and you can be overwhelmed. But have you ever just been whelmed? That doesn't make sense. Or disheveled. You can be disheveled, but have you ever been just shoveled? Just, I don't, these phrases we, we hear and we kind of not think about them. And I have a feeling that's honestly what happens when we think about some phrases in the Bible. In particular, the phrase house of God and this phrase from Jacob, gate of heaven. What does that mean? What do those phrases mean? So I want to just have this phrase I'm going to say, and I want you to repeat with me. The house of God is the gate of heaven. Would you just say that? The house of God is the gate of heaven. One more time. The house of God is the gate of heaven. All right. Now, what is the house of God? Well, the house of God, very simply put, is the dwelling place of God. It is where God chooses to dwell, where he abides. So the house of God is the gate of heaven. Gate. What is a gate? A, a gate is a transition point from one realm or dominion to another realm or dominion. It is both about authority and accessibility. You have a gate because you had a fence which protected a particular area, which means then that there's an authority there. There's, there's, this belongs to someone. But then you have accessibility because you have a gate in the fence. It's not just a fence. There's a gate there, which means you want to make um, accessible to those who are authorized to come and go. So the house of God is the gate of heaven, the gate being a transition place. In Jacob's dream, he sees this ladder and angels ascending and descending. What I want to just say that the house of God is the gate of heaven, and that gate is that transition place between the kingdom of God, that is the realm of God's rule, and the world and, and the earth in which we live. That God has permitted for a time, for some reason, in the world that uh, things that he doesn't desire or do, don't will actually happens. And there is this kingdom, that kingdom means king's domain, that God had, which is, by the way is Jesus' central message. To put it in perspective, Jesus mentions the kingdom of God over a hundred times in four gospels. He mentions the word church twice. The kingdom of God was Jesus' central message. He preached the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news of the dominion of God, God's domain. And so the, the, the gate is that transition point. The, the house of God is the gate of heaven, means it's that transition point between the realm of God's kingdom, the realm of God's good rule, in which there's order and things are as they should be, where justice prevails, righteousness flows, where good things 
Um, God's good world flourishes under God's good care. And there's that transition point to a world who's been tainted with sin and death, which is marked by injustice and unrighteousness, sinfulness. And the house of God is the gate of heaven. The house of God is the gate of heaven. Well, what or whom is the house of God? Well, let's track this. So Jacob mentions this phrase, the house of God. Surely God was here and I didn't know it. And that's the first place we really see this concept of the house of God. But then you fast forward later, God has um, delivered Israel from Egypt. He's brought them to Mount Sinai. He makes a covenant with them. And then he tells them to build this tent, this tabernacle, in which his glory resides in. This place would be, uh, there's this tent of meetings and this tabernacle, and this is where God would choose to dwell with Israel. And that became the house of God, the dwelling place of God. And that dwelling place was there in the Old Testament, as they, uh, in the desert as they traveled, was this meeting place, this place where Moses, for example, met with God face to face as a friend. It was the house of God. Fast forward 1,200 years or so, Solomon builds the temple. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 through 16, the glory of God fills the temple so much so everyone in the temple must fall on their face before the Lord. Now, just by the way, that translation in Second Chronicles 7 says they all fell. That's a very nice rendering. Uh, it actually means they all lost the ability to stand. So that could be they fell down or it could be they fell down. <laughs> just for all the Pentecostals in the room. The glory of the Lord filled the temple, and it said God dwelled there. And the temple became God's house, God's dwelling place. Imagine being a part of Israel, the people of God, who had this temple in which the one God of all creation, of all humankind, dwelt. The house of God was the gate of heaven, and the house was the temple. But then God, when he judges Israel throughout the Old Testament, the temple's destroyed, and Israel's taken into exile. Fast forward about a thousand years, a man named Zerubbabel begins to rebuild the temple. Then we have about 400 years of silence until Jesus emerges on the scene. And John chapter 1, verse 14 tells us that, there we go, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I want you to just pause and look at that verse. The word dwelt is not um, like any other time dwelt is used in the, in the New Testament. It actually means in the... Uh, and the word became flesh and tabernacled down among us. It is a play on words that he tabernacled down and we have seen his glory and the glory of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. So Jesus becomes the house of God and the gate of heaven. Now there is a man who has, uh, who, uh, God, who has become man, now becomes this place in which this dwelling place of God, this house of God, this gate of heaven, this place where we can now see um, who God is and what God's like, a place where God's kingdom accesses the world. Jesus would say, if I, if I uh, put my hand on you and a demon leaves you, then surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Surely you've felt the finger of God. When Jesus heals the sick and he, he delivers the demonized, when he preaches uh, the good news, when he um, just Jesus himself when you see him do these things when he announces to people their sins are forgiven you're seeing him be this gate of heaven this transition place where the kingdom of God is invading the world through his life and ministry the house of God is the gate of heaven but then Jesus 
dies and resurrects, talks with his disciples a while, and he ascends into heaven, and he's seated, and he pours out the Holy Spirit on his church. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if we indeed hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. Now all of those who have been redeemed are now the house of God. First Peter mentions that it's about you being this living stone, being built up with other stones to be the dwelling place of God. Paul mentions it in First Timothy that we are this house of God, this corner and foundation, this pillar of truth in the world. That the Bible over and over again re- reminds us, not just one person now, but all of us collectively, we are together as God dwells among us, the house of God. And the house of God is what? The gate of heaven. You already forgot. The house of God is the gate of heaven. Try it with me again. The house of God is the gate of heaven. One more time. The house of God is the gate of heaven, and you are the house of God. You, we together, are to be a people who live in such a way that we are a gate, a transition point from the dominion of God, from the kingdom of God, from God's good rule where justice prevails, where there's righteousness, where God's good creation flourishes. We're to be that transition point into a world marked by sin and death and destruction and hopelessness. The house of God is the gate of heaven, and we are the house of God. So, it seems to me that an important question would be, how do we go about being the house of God? Well, I want to turn to John chapter 14. Jesus kind of gives us a couple things. Jesus, in John 14, is talking to his disciples about how he has made known to them the Father. That would be a very, a very significant way to be the gate, right? To take from the, the kingdom of God, if you're going to be the gate, the transition point, where, where that which is the kingdom of God invades that which is earth, then part of that fundamental understanding, that part of that fundamental transition is that we understand what the Father's like. We understand the king who's the king of this kingdom, whose kingdom takes on his character. So it would be helpful to know who he is. And Jesus says, I have, he talking to his disciples, I've manifested the Father's name to you. I've made known to you the Father. But, you know, the disciples didn't get it. I mean, you know, there had to be moments where Jesus kind of looked up to heaven and went, Father, are you sure these guys are the ones? <laughs> you know, I, I don't think they're getting it. I mean, we need to give them some grace because I know we think, we look back and read like, well, I wouldn't have done that, but whatever. You know, it's like... <laughs> No matter how much you believe the Messiah would come, you don't expect him to walk into your front yard and get in your boat. <laughs> so they're struggling through this, and then Philip, so Philip decides to ask a question in, in John 14, um, verse 8, and Philip said to them, said to him, Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. <laughs> you know, again, that's the moment Jesus went, oh, boys, you're not getting it. Show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? I wonder if Jesus could say that to you. Have I been with you this long and you don't know me? Three years with Jesus, seeing all that Jesus did, and Philip says, you know what? 
Jesus, if you'll just show us the Father, that's enough. And Jesus says, Philip, I've been with you this long and you don't know me. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Now listen, how did Jesus, the fundamental question here, how has Jesus put the Father on display? And here it is. Jesus says, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. How long have I been with you and you've not known me, Philip? Have you not heard my words, and have you not seen my works? The way, that God, the way that Jesus put the Father on display was the gate, was the transition place between the kingdom of heaven and the earth. The two primary ways would be his words and his works. That is, that he said what the Father was saying. And that the Father, the, the very authority, the very power of his words were demonstrated in the power of his works. Now, by works, I don't mean just simply good works, like earning yourself favor. I mean works like healing the sick, like proclaiming the gospel, like having compassion on the hurting and broken, like um, raising the dead. That'd be a big one. You know, like, th these are the works that, the, that Jesus did that demonstrated the authority behind his words. Words, works, and then you see prayer. I want to talk about this this morning uh, for just a moment here, very practically. How did Jesus function as the gate of heaven? What does these words and these works mean? And how might we do them? So I want to give you really just four simple things for us to focus on that might help us. So just a little pastoral message this morning. How do we practically learn from Jesus to be the gate of heaven? First is Jesus lived aware of and dependent upon God's presence. The very first thing that we realize is Jesus lived aware of and dependent on God's presence. Now look, I know what you're thinking, or at least I, uh, that's actually, I don't, that's an assumption. You may be thinking about who knows what right now. Most people, when you talk about Jesus as being a model, they kind of go, yeah, but he's Jesus, you know, I'm like from Oklahoma. You know, like just calm down a bit. He's like God and all. But he was also fully man. If you don't think he had the same difficult, or the same um, limitations that you have as a human being, then you don't believe he was really human. All right? Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. He's not, like, um, he's not like God from the waist up. <laughs> he's not like half human and half God, right? He's not like some, that's like Greek mythology. He's not some demigod. He's fully God and fully man. And he has all of the same limitations as a human being. And he lived dependent upon God. And you may say, yes, but he was like righteous and all. And that is true. But look, if I understand what God has done in Jesus Christ, that when you believe upon Jesus and are baptized into him, that the very righteousness that belongs to Jesus is now given to you, and you become engrafted into Jesus and you share in his righteousness, then the question no longer is the, that sin keeps you. Now the question becomes, how much are you willing to live dependent upon God? If God's dealt with the sin Listen, uh, ooh, ooh, be careful, 18. What Jesus has done 
no longer makes, our, makes sin the primary problem. It makes our, the issue really is our refusal of Jesus is the primary problem. And Jesus lived aware of and dependent upon the Holy Spirit. The John, uh, the Gospel of John capsulates this. John 1, verse 32, it says, And the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus as a dove and remained. Anybody ever mess with doves? You, like, look at them funny, and they take off, right? They're very, fl- very flighty birds. Pigeons, you can't get to leave, right? <laughs> Pigeons, you can shoot at and throw stuff at, and they're just kind of like, what's up? You know, like the gangster of the birds, right? And just going to look at you like, what are you going to do about it, you know? Right? And listen, the Holy Spirit is a dove, not a pigeon. He descends upon If I was going to walk down these steps here with, with a dove on my shoulder and I wanted the dove to remain, how might I start walking? I would walk by taking every step with a dove in mind. I would be more aware of the dove than I even am of you. If we want to live aware of and dependent upon God's presence, the first thing you need to know, you know this is no longer about you needing more of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is not earned in that way. It's a gift. The real issue is we must grow in our awareness of the Holy Spirit. The issue is awareness, not earning. You don't need more of the Holy Spirit. Whatever the, Holy, whatever the amount of Holy Spirit God's given you, it's enough to sanctify you, to redeem you, to take you from a child of wrath to a child of God, to actually form Christ in you. It's enough. And the Holy Spirit come fully loaded. Right? Now the issue is not, I need more of the Holy Spirit. Now the issue is, how am I willing to turn my awareness to him? Now that is something, though, we can learn by training, by practice, by conversation with one another, by prayer and meditation by examining the life of Jesus. This requires awareness of the Spirit and, honestly, courage to respond. Awareness of the Spirit and courage to respond. So part of my own journey, and this is my own journey, it could, may not be yours, but if I wanted, the more I want to cre- increase my awareness of the Holy Spirit, it almost requires that I'm willing to slow my life down. Hurry is often the obstruction to awareness. Are you willing to just slow down to discern the presence of God? Are we willing to just pause or to just take a moment and and watch over what might be going on or before we step into a meeting to just pause and say, God, I realize you're already at work in these people's lives and you're already at work in this meeting. I want to turn my awareness to you. And the only way I know to turn my awareness to the Holy Spirit is by learning to turn my affections to the Holy Spirit. So for me, it helps to just imagine my heart turning towards the Holy Spirit and just saying, Lord, Holy Spirit, I love you. You are worthy of all honor and glory and praise. That you are the gift from the Father to me, and I receive you, and I want to cherish you. As I begin to just turn my affections, I begin to heighten my awareness. This makes sense? And then as you begin to engage with people, talk with people, you're, you were learning how to, though I'm listening with them, I'm almost always listening to two people. I'm listening to the, with the awareness of the Holy Spirit at work here in me and around me, and I'm listening to the person. Almost learning to do both, which requires you to talk less, by the way. <laughs> okay, that was extra. That went over real well, didn't it? We turn our attentions and affections to the Holy Spirit throughout the day. This is one way that we live, and I've tried to practice it. I don't do it all the time, 
But I can tell you this, the times that I, before I go into meetings, I used to um, have to schedule 15 minutes um, about every three hours in between meetings. If my day was just filled with meetings, I would wind up at the end of the day kind of like just numb, trying to figure out how, whatever decisions I made, what, what decisions did I make, <laughs> and then were they even connected in any way, and I can't even remember what, I, being present with the people in the conversations that I had. I almost had to start pausing for, for little 15-minute times where I would actually just lay on my office floor and just say, Holy Spirit, I turn my attention to you. Come again. I want to receive your love for me. I want to remind myself of how much you love me, that while I was your enemy, you died for me, that you demonstrated the links you'd go to rescue me. And I just want to turn my attention to you and say that I love you. I almost had to do that in order that the meetings would not just run through in a hurry and all of a sudden I wind up at the end of the day and don't even know where God was. Or we went to slow down and turn our attention to the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing. Jesus lived dependent upon, aware of the Holy Spirit and dependent upon the presence of God with him. So if we're going to be the gate, because the house of God is... <laughs> this is horrible. The house of God is the gate of heaven. Say with me again. The house of God is the gate of heaven. All right, well, I won't bother you too much more with that. But the house of God is the gate of heaven. If we're going to be this transition, I mean, let me just ask you, what are you doing with your life more important than that? Are you telling me building a little bit more of a career is more important than being the transition place from heaven to earth? To being a representative of the kingdom of God? To being a part of God's plan of the total reconciliation of all creation back to himself? I, I can promise you, whatever you do with your life, well, let me, let me put in the positive, not the negative. What God is doing in your life is the most important thing in your life. And you are the house of God and the, the gate of heaven. You are this transition place. And part of the way we learn to be this transition place is we learn to be aware of and attentive to the presence of God. The second thing that we learn to do as, Jesus as we look at Jesus' life is we look that Jesus looked for God's activity around him. Jesus looked for God's activity around him. Jesus knew that he could not do anything of any substantial value apart from the Father. There is no way we're going to be the gate of heaven, this transition place where the kingdom of God invades the world. There's no way we're going to be that gate apart from what the Father's doing. Listen, I just want you to hear, Jesus told his disciples in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. But the context is, hey, if you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing, <laughs> right? Now listen, that sounds really negative, but just let it soak in because it's actually really freeing. You can do nothing of eternal value apart from God's activity. That may sound negative, but here's the good news. God's doing the heavy lifting, God says, come abide with me. Come dwell with me. Come make room for me in your soul. Come let my words make their home in you. You abide in me, let my words abide in you. Ask what you want and you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. It's actually very freeing to go, there's no way I can do this apart from God. And Jesus knew it, and he lived that way. That's what motivated him in his dwelling of and, and dependency on the Holy Spirit, right? But Jesus would then as uh, if we can't do anything apart from the Father, but the good news is the Father is always at work around us. So now the question becomes not, how can I be aware of God and then do a bunch of good works? Now it becomes, how do I stay aware of God discern what he's doing around me, and then just join him in it. And Jesus lived this way. 
Let me give you some ways that he discerned the Father. One way was he looked for those who were hungry for God. That is something only God can do. Only God can make a soul hungry and thirst for God. So, for example, he's walking into a crowded street. And he sees a, I used to joke, an Irish man, a wee little man, Zacchaeus, right? He sees a Zacchaeus up on a tree longing to get a view of him. And he looks at him and he sees the hunger. He discerns God's at work. So he goes to Zacchaeus and says, I'm inviting myself over. I'm coming to your house. And the Bible said Jesus' presence there, Zacchaeus repented and believed. But he was able to notice what God was doing. That when God stirs in somebody hunger for spiritual maturity, when God stirs in people spiritual questions, when God stirs in people longings for, for deep spiritual desires, these are things only God can do. So pay attention to when you see him. Another thing he paid attention to was times that he was moved with compassion. The Bible says over and over again that Jesus was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion and he healed people. He was moved to compassion. He forgave people. He was moved to compassion and he fed people. But here's a good one in Mark 7. He was moved with compassion and taught people. Being moved with compassion doesn't mean you give people what they want. Just being clear about that. But that means then, I want you to realize what that meant experientially. I'm trying to help you identify it, connect the dots in your own experience. That means Jesus lived not only aware of God's presence and turned his attention to it, but he was able to pay attention to his own desires, his own emotions, his own feeling. When he knew he was drawn with compassion, he recognized that as God's activity, that God was doing something. When's the last time you were moved with compassion? Did you pay attention to it? Did you notice it? Maybe that's the invitation of God to step in and be a gate of heaven. He was moved with compassion. Not only that, he, he recognized eternity in conversations. He'd be talking to a bloke, right, like the centurion. And he would say, you know, I understand authority. If you just say the word, my daughter's healed. And all of a sudden, Jesus realized, whoa, this guy understands something about eternity. So he turns his attention to him, right? Or the woman who sneaks up on Jesus, right, to touch, she's trying to, like, bootleg a Healy. <laughs> if I can just touch his hem of his garment, she's going to purse snatch a miracle, right? If I could just get up and touch his hem of his garment, I'll be healed. She does. He recognizes something has left. Imagine how aware of God's presence you have to be to know when God did something through you. Like, something just happened. And he said, someone touched me. The disciples laughed, like, there's hundreds of people crowding around you, touching you. What are you talking about? And he's like, no, something fundamental. And when he finds her, he hears her cry. I thought if I could just touch your garment, I'd be healed. And he marvels at her faith. He recognized God was up to something. We pay attention, or the woman at the well. We pay attention to what God's doing in the middle of conversations. A woman at the well, she's at the well in the middle of the day for all kinds of painful reasons. And he was aware of that, and he engages with her. Are you willing to be the gate of heaven? Which means are we willing to live aware and depend on the presence of God? And are we willing to look for God's activity? I remember one time I went into a, a little meeting and I walked up to a man and I shook his hand and the moment I shook his hand, the only way I know how to describe it, I had this just intruding thought. And really it was an intruding picture. And it was a, a picture, the only way I can say it, almost like a broccoli or a, a mushroom on this rounded thing. And I, I just, it was there and it was gone. And you know, I was kind of like, with that. But I was trying to pay attention to what God was doing, and so I remember sitting down and people were talking, I just kept thinking about this picture. Then all of a sudden my heart started racing, I realized, uh-oh, God's up to something. He's going to ask me to, to do something here, you know. 
I don't know about how great your faith is, but mine's like, please, Jesus, if there's any way I don't have to do this, right? So I just said, guys, I, I just want to share this with you. It could be nothing. It may be important. I'm just trying to obey God. and I would rather fail forward than fail sitting still. So I took out a piece of paper, and I drew what I saw, and I just said, does this mean anything? And the man whose hand I was shaking looked to his wife and said, that looks just like, um, I forget, the scan, the picture of the scan from my medical procedure or a medical test. And he said, I just came from the doctor last week, found I have polyps, uh, I think it was his colon, kidney, something like that. But anyway, it was very serious. And he said, that looks exactly like the test result, the picture, from the same angle, same thing. Now, I've got to be honest. When I'm drawing it, it's like, what is this? Like a little chunk of broccoli on the side of a hill? It makes no sense to me. And he said, look, it's just like it. So we gathered around him and we prayed. Now, I want to be clear. When we prayed, there wasn't like lightning from heaven. Nobody shook or fell. Nobody sweat. Nobody yelled. We just put our hands on him and said, Jesus, you're up to something. We ask you to come in Jesus' name and heal him. He comes back a month later from a test saying, all the polyps are gone. And the doctors can't explain it. Yeah, that's yay God. That doesn't happen because A.T.'s awesome. A.T. was scared. That happens because God's house is to be the gate of heaven. And God wanted to do something in that man's life. And he's just looking for someone. But I cannot tell you how easy it would have been to ignore that intruding thought in that picture. To just say, well, that was weird. And move right on my day. That's why it requires us to take total orientation of our life here and say, my priority today is to be aware of the presence of God, dependent upon God, and look for his activity in my day. As I do the things that are common and ordinary in front of me, I'm going to be looking for his activity. The third thing that Jesus did, not only is he aware of God's presence, not only look for God's activity, but the third way Jesus was the gate that we can learn from is that Jesus, when he discerned what God was doing, he acted with confidence that God would act with him. Here's the deal. I want you to hear me. You do not act and respond to God because you feel like an expert. If you feel like an expert, you're just arrogant. There are no experts here when it comes to following God. <laughs> we may just be a little bit farther in the same journey. So if you're waiting till you feel confident and your confidence comes from being an expert, then you're never going to do it. Our confidence to act comes from the fact that regardless of what happens, God will be with me and God will act with me. So I act in the confidence that God will act with me. I don't know what will come. Nothing may come. That's okay because part of acting in confidence with God is to leave the results up to God, not to me. So we act with confidence because God acts with us. As we slow down and discern God, as we pay attention to what he's doing, we must then turn and act. And listen, that's going to require some risk. John Wimber used to say, you spell faith R-I-S-K. If you're looking for a way to be obedient to God that doesn't require risk, that's not faith. That's something altogether different. When's the last time you pushed the level of your comfort zone in obedience to God? Even if you were wrong. I'm not talking about being presumptuous. I'm just saying, when's the last time you took a risk 
in response to what God was doing around you. Now look, by a risk, don't compare your risk to somebody else's risk. I have a friend, Brian Blount, who I was on staff with for years, who, who now pastors a church that I, I used to pastor. And, and Brian's one of those guys who go through the drive-thru and he'll order food and the lady gets there and he'll be like, hey, you have pain in the back, in this side of your back. And she'll be like, how'd you know? And he'll be like, pray for her. And she gets healed and he's like, thanks for my you know, fries. And he takes off. And I look at that and go, how, what in the world? Don't compare risk to other people. Compare risk to your comfort zone. When's the last time you said yes to God that pushed your comfort zone? Because usually God, an encounter with God is not that far away. It's just right on the other side of that comfort zone. When's the last time you responded to God that way? And the fourth thing that Jesus did is he left the results up to the Father. Our job is to open the gate. God's job is for heaven to invade earth. We don't make that happen. We just open it. We open it by discerning what God's doing, by paying attention to him, by doing our best to respond to him, to take risk with him. But in the end, whether or not heaven invades earth, whether or not people are healed or brought to salvation, or whether or not people get touched by God or encounter God, that's up to God and not us. So the good news about that is God will do the heavy lifting. Our job is to respond. Our job is to be the house of God, which is the gate of heaven, and to open the gate that the king of glory may come in. The Bible says, lift your head, O you gates. Well, in the ancient days, gates had heads. These heads were huge, often very heavy, and they're all often decorated, uh, usually with you know, either beautiful or terrifying images, if you go back and look. But these, gate, these heads were what was put onto the top of the gate that locked down and added weight. And so the head of a gate was a way in which a city protected itself by locking the gate, securing it, and it was a way a city displayed its glory and beauty by making it look beautiful, right? So when the Bible says, lift your head, O you gates, it is crying out to a city, to a community of people, make yourself vulnerable to the king of glory, and he'll come in. When's the last time your life was lived in vulnerability with God that if God didn't show up, you might be in trouble? When's the last time you pushed your comfort zone and saying yes to God? Really, your yes is just a yes to God's yes to you in Jesus. But when's the last time that we did that? And let me ask you a question. Is the boredom that often plagues our life because we've settled for materialism, money, hedonism, pleasure, when we've been called to be the gate of heaven, to be the transition place where the kingdom of God touches the earth. No wonder we might get a little bored with a boat or a new car. We've been made to be the house of God and the gate of heaven. Well, We are to turn our attention to the presence of God with us, aware of his presence, make our home with him, discern and respond to him. And the main way we do that is through prayer. That's what Jesus mentions in that passage. My word and my works, he says, and if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Prayer becomes a central way. We cooperate with God and we open the gate, just so you, you know. He actually, Jesus has a theme throughout John 14 through 17, just to frame this as I, as I begin to conclude. 
just to frame it, in John 14 through 17, he's having a conversation with his disciples, and really it's a commissioning. He's, he's sending them out, if you read it in that context. He's back saying, I'm about to leave. Here's some things you need to know. And he keeps saying, he repeats six times that it's important that you bear much fruit, that you bear much fruit. That's what you get. The theme and drive of John 14 through 17 is Jesus meeting with his disciples saying, now go and bear much fruit. Go and bear much fruit. But do you know the thing he says equally same amount of time? Six times, bear much fruit. And six times, ask me anything in my name, and I will do it. It seems to me that in order to bear much fruit according to Jesus, it's twofold. Abide in me and let my words abide in you. And then prayer. Ask me, and I'll respond on your behalf. And God says, you'll bear much fruit. This is not about us being clever or witty. It's not us getting it all figured out. It's not even about us getting to the place where we're just totally cool and confident in our own selves about doing this. No, you probably, I mean, there's times where it's like I'm out on the end of a branch and it's shaking and Jesus says, you know, jump. And I said, Jesus, I can't jump. The thing's shaking. And, you know, and he said, okay, we'll go out a little farther. I can't go out a little farther. It's shaking it. And I look over and God's like, yeah, I'm the one shaking it. <laughs> Anybody else? Just get out there, son. Jesus steps in the boat of Peter. And he says, it's time to throw your net on the other side of the boat. And Peter just kind of looks at him and says, what? This is my paraphrase. What? You're a carpenter. I'm a fisherman. I know how to catch fish. First of all, you don't catch fish in the daytime. We fish at night. And you don't catch fish this close to the shore. Trust me, I'm a fisherman. Jesus just looks at him. Launch out into the deep, let down your nets for a draft. Jesus, you don't understand. I fished this lake my entire life. You don't do it that way. And Jesus just stands at the other end of your boat. And you're going to need something, some words, some way to help you push into obedience. And I think what Peter says is brilliant. He finally, after all the reasoning, just looks at Jesus and says, Nevertheless, at your word. Tell Jesus all the reasons why whatever he's asking you to do seems crazy. He'll listen. He'll just sit at the other end of your boat looking at you. Tell him all the reasons why you don't do it this way. This is not the way you lead a business. This is not the way you handle children. It's not the way you talk with strangers. Tell him that this may make other people feel uncomfortable. Doesn't he know that? Tell him all of those things. And he'll just sit at the other end of your boat and stare at you. And you're going to need something that will help you move in the right direction. I'm telling you, a great word is... Nevertheless, at your word. And you launch your boat, and you throw the net, and the rest is up to him. Now, yeah, I'd like to conclude with something. Would you stand with me? Would the worship team come? I just want to tell you how important this is, that the house is the gate, and we are the house of God. We are this transition place. But I want to read a, a prophecy to you from Isaiah chapter 2. And this is one of the few prophecies, listen to me right quick, about the latter days that is repeated almost word for word by another prophet, and that's Micah, in Micah chapter 4. So I want to read this to you. I'm going to read it slowly, and then I'm going to give you a little bit of interpretation as we go. But I just want you to hear this. Just remember, the house of God is the gate of heaven, and we are the house of God. Amen? All right. 
the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. You ready? It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest among the mountains. In other words, it shall come to pass in the latter days that God will take his house and he will bring his house, who we are, into visibility. He will give us a place where we can be seen. Not one of us, but us. We shall be lifted, the house of God will be lifted above the hills. And here's the promise. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God. For he, God, will teach us his ways that we might walk in his path. How will God teach the nations his ways? Because there will be a house, who we are. There will be a people who, slow, slow, who, who took the time to learn the ways of God from learning how to follow Jesus. And then out of Zion shall come order and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And God shall put right between the nations and he shall decide disputes for many peoples. And listen to this. And they, being the nations, shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Come, O house of God, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. God promises in the latter days he will take his house, who we are, and give it visibility that the nations would flow to it and say, teach us your way. And as we teach the ways of the Lord, one of the ways we'll know God is transforming people's hearts is they will begin to transform their weapons of warfare into tools of production. Spears will get turned into pruning hooks and swords into, plow, swords into plowshares. And they'll learn war no more. This is who we are as a people. Now, years ago, because we're special because we're the house of God and the gate of heaven and it's our job open the gates O house of God and the king of glory will come in Lord we turn our attention to you now and we just say we're going to need help and we're so thankful you're more excited about this than we are I pray that you would help us respond to you to discern you Holy Spirit, move right now and do what only you can do as we worship and respond to you.
your GP2RL, your God's presence to real life, because we are people that bring God's presence to real life in every realm of society and every level of community. Your GP2RL, I just challenge you, your action point. Push your comfort zone by taking a small risk and loving and ministering to someone else and see what God does. Will you just take a moment this week to take a small risk and try to just be attentive to God and respond to what he's doing and just see what God does?